Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Urban coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday morning, May the 30th. So we had a snoozer of a Europa League final. Hazard has come out and basically said, this is it, I'm leaving. What uh, everyone has been suspecting for months, um, really going back to last summer, that this would likely be Hazard's last year with Chelsea, last season with Chelsea, and he finished it up with two goals and a win for Chelsea. Going into halftime, though, man, what a boring game. There was just... There was nothing to the game. Uh, ended 4-1 in favor of Chelsea. Arsenal had several chances in the first half. Looked like, you know, the slightly better side. I, I wouldn't say, like, dramatically better, but they were slightly better than Chelsea in the first half. But it was nil-nil. Neither team could break through. Chelsea comes out right after half. And, um, you know, after they scored one, Arsenal really started having to kind of open up and go for it. And um, they just opened themselves up uh, repeatedly to, you know, being attacked and uh, themselves. And, you know, we, we get to the 4-1 scoreline. Arsenal had chances throughout the game, uh, even in the second half, uh, to make this um a different result or a much closer result for sure there they had two clear chances even after going down 4-1 to to have gotten it back within a goal and just you know weren't able to put them in um you know Chelsea I wouldn't say that Chelsea was the better side all around watching the match yesterday I actually thought they were pretty evenly matched neither team were that impressive and not really surprised they finished where they finished in the uh, in the table uh, in England. Um, when you look at them compared to Man City and, and Liverpool, um, those two clubs are on a different level, and 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 you, you could see it in the way that the teams finished and the number of points uh, Man City and Liverpool had at the end of the season compared to everyone else in the league. But when you look at uh, Chelsea and Arsenal. Uh, there's just a lot of a lot of deficiencies, a lot of holes in the way that uh, both teams are currently constructed. Um, you know, Chelsea and Arsenal had moments, but neither were that impressive. The one thing I would say is that Chelsea proved to be more clinical in front of goal. Um, you know, Giroud and and Hazard and Pe Pedro. I don't want to leave Pedro out. Um, all three were were much more effective in front of goal than Aubameyang and uh, Lacazette for Arsenal. It was it was just really kind of even the, even that four one wasn't like exciting play. Just you know it was kind of um, I don't know. It was weird. It was just it was it was a final that didn't really feel like a final. Um, but you know, congratulations to Chelsea. They they did what they had to do to to get the win, and for the first time ever, um, you know, the the Chelsea manager, sorry, um, he is is a champion. He's first time he's won a trophy at any level. 
that he's ever coached. And, and you're talking about a guy who, you know, was not in the game, decided this is something he wanted to do, and got involved at, at Serie D in Italy. That's the fourth division, right? So we don't have a fourth division in America, but if we did, it would be USL League Two or, or NPSL or UPSL or the Gulf Coast Premier League. All of those leagues operate in the amateur space. And because there's no pecking order and no sanctioning uh, divisional order for any of those amateur leagues, any one of those leagues could claim to be de facto fourth division. And that was that's essentially, for, for, it, for Italy, where he was managing for quite a long time. Took took uh kind of bounced around Serie B, the second division for a little while, dropped down into Serie C and then finally got uh his first opportunity in Serie A and then again in Napoli and then, you know, went to Chelsea and uh and wins with, with the roster that he had. Um, you know, he's gotten a lot of criticism this year, but for the roster roster that he had in trying to get his system implemented and the way that he wants to play, um, and and to finish third with that lineup with that group, and you look at what was around him with with uh, Manchester United, um, Arsenal, etc. I mean, hats off to the guy pulling out a third place finish, and. Um, Champions League finish in in the in the league, um, and then you know being able to take them to two finals. They lost one in penalties. They win this one. Um, kudos to him. You could definitely tell that was a special moment for him, holding that medal, celebrating uh, that experience. So uh, definitely was was a cool thing. Just just looking at that aspect of you know, what was going on um, on the field after the game and, and, and all of that. And there's all kinds of rumors about him leaving as well. And if he does, I certainly don't blame him for the treatment he's gotten. But, um, you know, it was, other than that, I mean, the, the final itself was a snoozer. I'm certainly uh, thinking and hoping that the Champions League final on Saturday is a much different story. I do think it will be. Um and and you know but we we shall see but it, it all the way up to this point liverpool and tottenham both have um you know been in dramatic games and i i'm hoping that the the the, the final on saturday is dramatic at least for a little while and then hopefully liverpool uh, pulls away and um and secures victory so uh but we, you know we will get to to some of that tomorrow as we kind of look ahead to the game um it it, it is you know, when, when you look at these finals and you look at kind of what is on the line and, and the eyeballs that are on these games around the world, um, you know, I, I just I'd look at our American system and just ask why, you know. And, and so news comes out yesterday, for example, that Major League Soccer is working with Liga MX to create a what they're calling a leagues cup leagues plural as in league mx and mls and it's it's basically just a small little you know side tournament uh on top of the Concacaf champions league every game is going to be played in america and one of the things you have to understand that you have to know the dynamics behind what's going on this is a marketing play 
this is a cash grab. This is not about competition. And you you have to and you have to know what the relationship is behind the scenes. What those what those relationships are between Major League Soccer, League MX, the Mexican Federation, and the U.S. Soccer Federation. In between all of those parties that I just mentioned is a company called Soccer United Marketing. And uh, its acronym SUM is something that we, that that you'll hear me talk about. SUM is a company that is owned in the same setup, owned in the same way as Major League Soccer is owned by its owner-operators. The same ownership groups that make up Major League Soccer own Soccer United Marketing. And in order to save MLS... Back in the early 2000s, when the league was about to fold, U.S. Soccer granted Major League Soccer a no-bid contract with itself and helped it secure a contract with the Mexican Federation under this new company called Soccer United Marketing. And what this does is, is the Mexican Federation, anytime their national teams play in America... Soccer United Marketing makes 40% of the gate. 40% of the revenue comes in, goes to Soccer United Marketing. So if you've noticed uh, in the last, you know, 15, nearly 20 years, that the Mexican national team, whenever they're not in official matches, will often play friendlies in America. And it goes back to the relationship with Soccer United Marketing. Now, Soccer United Marketing, some, has gone beyond just the Mexican national teams and has begun to try to work with Liga MX on a variety of ways. There was some news a few months ago how Liga MX was looking at getting rid of its relegation setup and becoming a closed league very similar to Major League Soccer. And that eventually got shut down, but the the pressure and the influence from Soccer United Marketing is evident on the Mexican Federation and on Liga MX. And what it what is going on with this little tournament, the League's Cup, is just an effort, a marketing effort, for some to basically pick some cities in the U.S. and and play all of the matches on the U.S. side of the border uh, with Mexican teams, and it's 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 basically you know their version of you know what relevant sports does with the International Champions Cup. It, it is it's just a competition unto itself. It doesn't lead to anything. Um, it, it is you know. A, a cash grab and it's also an opportunity for some to test out potential MLS markets in their mind this is how they test them out they'll go and they'll do a match between you know um, Chivas and RSL but they'll instead of playing in Salt Lake City they'll go play in Vegas and they'll see you know what the reaction of the city's like how much do they embrace it how much effort are they putting into it how many fans show up 
and they kind of you know track all of that and they go oh look vegas looks like a an interesting city for us to consider for an mls franchise expansion team that is what's going on here they're going to basically use the cash from the public make money and do market research from the the same people that are paying them at the same time um because mls is 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 not getting it done i mean you turn on the tv and you check out the stadiums there most of them are not getting very good attendance the tv ratings are terrible and and so this is another way for some to make some money and they're going to do it by getting american soccer fans to try to come and attend something that they wouldn't otherwise attend they're not going to come and watch rsl um play you know um colorado rapids but they'll come watch the colorado rapids host um you know a mexican side they'll come and watch rsl host a mexican side and you know um and 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 in that they can make some money and that's what's going on um ultimately the, the reason why U.S. soccer is giving relevant problems the way I see it is that they're, the U.S. Uh, U.S. soccer is trying to help its marketing partner in some to strangle its competition in relevant sports and the ICC and what they're trying to do. Um, you know, some could basically try to set up the same system here in the U.S., and uh, in the absence of relevant sports, if they go away, now some can kind of fill that void. And I think they would definitely look to fill that void. They don't, they don't care about the competition to MLS matches. They, they are constantly doing friendlies with teams um, in, in, in the summertime during their season uh, already. They, they're never concerned about the soccer, okay? So don't ever think that MLS is concerned about the soccer. That's not what's going on. What they're concerned about is the money. They want the money, and they can't get the money from MLS versus MLS, so then they want to get the money from MLS versus someone else. And and ultimately, in the end, I think part of the issue with U.S. soccer and relevant is, is that some has identified that they want to get the money from someone else p- playing someone else, not even playing MLS, and, and, and that be another revenue stream for them. They want to control and own all of soccer. They, they have a monopolist mentality, uh, the leadership at the top, those who, who are from an NFL background, they want to control the whole space all the way down. That's why they've tried to and have been successful in infiltrating U.S. youth soccer. And, and so when you look at all of these things and, and understand what's really going on behind the scenes, you get a picture that um, the Federation is is not only not doing its job, it is doing a disservice, it is harming the rest of its constituents in favor of Major League Soccer. That's a problem. It should stop. It should end. Uh, I think it's quite frankly illegal that you can sanction bodies and then give no-bid contracts away to one member favored over everyone else. So um, th- that, that element is is wrong and it's it's bad for um it's bad for this country it's bad for um the uh the american soccer club in in reno it's bad for the american soccer club 
in Birmingham, Alabama. It's bad for the soccer club in any part of this country, whether that's Boise or West Virginia or Tennessee. It doesn't matter. It's not good for American soccer to have an unhealthy alliance with Major League Soccer and Soccer United Marketing. And we are all suffering this entire country. We are not getting the drama and the revenue and all the kind of stuff. The investment that has gone overseas to European clubs has not come here from American wealthy owners because of the system that is in place. And it's a problem and it's got to change. So the sponsor for today's show is Charity Water. Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people all over the world. They are changing villages and people all over the place and providing them the opportunity to dream big, to work harder, to get an education, to get skills, to change their villages because they're not having to walk miles upon miles upon miles to try to get access to water, even if it's not clean drinking water. So them coming in and doing wells and providing clean drinking water is is changing the destiny of, of kids and adults all over the world. And they're doing incredible work. You should find more about them, support them at charitywater.org. We will be right back after this break with David Kemp. No one, no man, no woman, no child. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in and, uh, and, and watching the show each and every morning. And this morning, we are excited to have joining us David Kemp, the director of coaching for the Gulf Coast Texans. He's also the uh, owner and coach of the Pensacola FC uh, ladies team. David, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? Good morning, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be on. I appreciate it. 
So give us a little bit of background on you. Um, you know, where are you from? How did you get involved in the game? You know, why uh, stay involved in the game uh, as long as you have? You know, what drives that for you? Uh, well, I think my story is similar to a lot of a lot of people um, from England or from other countries that are over here coaching is that, you know, we weren't quite good enough to make it back home. And so we, we heard about, I'm talking the mid-90s here, uh, you know, we're talking fax machines and dodgy resumes, uh, trying to get a scholarship in the U.S. Um, so I heard basically that you could go to college in the U.S., uh, they would help you financially and the level was really good and, and maybe there was an opportunity to, you know, resurrect your career or move on from there. So that's what attracted me. I'd always wanted to come to America at some point. And I'm from central London uh, from the inner city. So, uh, you know, America had always seen it on the movies and everything. It was always a, a fantastic place. So that's what attracted me. I didn't really know what I was getting in for um, because I ended up at West Florida, as you know, which is in Pensacola. And uh, my my ignorance of the map of Florida, like I thought I was heading to the Tampa area, you know, I knew about Tampa and Orlando. Uh, and then when I took the SAT in London, um, I found out from somebody there that Pensacola was up on the panhandle. Um, so that was that was interesting to find that out. But obviously it wasn't a negative thing because it's a beautiful place to live. So uh, but, but but when I was young, I was in the youth system at Charlton FC and Crystal Palace. And uh, to be honest, Daniel, that's nothing like it is now being in an academy uh, in, in those type of teams now, I'm sure is an amazing experience. Back then, they were kind of winging it, you know. It wasn't much organization or focus, um, you know, about what the training was. Uh, they were just sort of throwing you out there and, and playing. And there wasn't, what I can remember anyway, uh, there wasn't that much sort of technical instruction or tactical instruction. It was kind of like dog eat dog. The cream will rise to the top and, and get selected for the following year. So it was a pretty brutal system back then. So you, you come to America and you experience college soccer. Before we move on, I don't want to miss the opportunity to get your feedback and insight on your personal experience uh, in college soccer. What did, you, what did you experience? What did you enjoy? What did you look at and go, man, I wish this was different? Okay, interesting. The first thing, obviously, you know, you arrive from London for pre-season in early August, and obviously the heat is an issue. You know, you, you're like, we're, we're really going to train in this today? And then you have that focus of fitness, you know? So it, it's like, wow, we're, we're going to be running in this today. And it, it, that was a big shock to me at first, was just being able to deal with the humidity. Uh, that took a little while. Um, I, I, you know, one of the negatives, too, was just the relentless game, the relentless game schedule. Uh, you know, two games a weekend, uh, and, and then, you know, I remember, I think every single year I got some kind of injury, like a rolled ankle or that, and you're basically out for five games. Like, you, you, I mean, you could get some kind of injury and you miss half the season. It's so condensed. Uh, and then it's so much pressure to win every single game. Um, but I really, I really liked the, the professionalism that was behind it. You know, um, just little things like having the national anthem play before the game. Like, you know, my first game, I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is something different. Um, and, and, and it's interesting traveling around um, the, the southeastern U.S. and seeing the, the small towns that you go through and the areas that you don't see on the movies. You know, you see New York, you see California. Um, so I saw a completely different side of America that I thought. But um, I thought the level was good back then. Um, UWF was NAIA and University Mobile was always very strong. But back then, William Carey, University Mobile, Birmingham Southern, 
you know, Lindsey Wilson. These teams are phenomenal. They were they were full of mainly older players, uh, you know, foreigners. But the level I thought was outstanding back then. I think it still is, you know, in, in certain areas of NAIA on the men's side. Um, but yeah, I, I, there were some definitely some negatives. I think mainly was was the heat at first and just the condensed schedule. I would definitely like the season to have been longer to allow for some more. Uh, team development, you know, I think the coaches are under a lot of pressure in a small period uh, to get their results. So that can that condensed schedule, you know, it, it, it's so weird. Why even now, knowing what we know about, yeah. you know, recovery and injuries, why college soccer has not figured out how to extend its season so that you you don't have such fixture congestion in a short amount of time and, and, and spreading that out over, you know, a longer amount of time, um, you know, and, and, and look with, as with many things, um, I was watching, um, a show yesterday, uh, after my show and, uh, in, in, it was, it was, uh, Rich Eisen, uh, having, uh, Timothy Oliphant on the show and their buddies and, and Tim, uh, Timothy Oliphant's come on uh, Rich Eisen's show, you know, a lot of times over the years, and he was on promoting uh, his Deadwood movie that's coming out on Friday on HBO, and and Oliphant's a big sports guy, you know, swam at uh, I mm-hmm. believe USC, and and he started talking about you know um, the NCAA and 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 you know how it it bothers him, you know how athletes are treated, etc. and you know, in 2019, the fact that we still have college soccer being treated the way it is by the NCAA and the length of season, et cetera, is, is definitely concerning. I do hope that changes for the sake of college soccer and for the sake of the kids who go and play in college soccer because I think um, it would definitely help uh, improve not only the ability to, to develop players at that, that are playing in college but also prevent some injuries. So it's interesting that you point out uh, some of the, the, you know, personal uh, experiences you had and injuries uh, that came from the fixture congestion. Over in England growing up, um, how much is known about the American system, or at least back then, how much was known about what was going on in the U.S., whether at the, the top level or, or even at college? Or was it kind of like something you heard about from somebody who heard about it from somebody, and then you just kind of check it out for yourself when you get there? Yeah, I mean, I think now you've got all kinds of recruiting services and combines and videos, and I think the the, the awareness is a lot higher. Back then, like I said, it was a fax machine. You know, <laughs> that that's how you're. I remember I remember reading the magazine, and in the back it was like um, play play college in the U.S. There was this tiny little advertisement, and I wrote I wrote to that, and they sent me a book, which is basically like a, it had all the schools in there, and then it had details of you know what what where they are. How many uh, how many people go to the school? Like it was really you know basic level. Like it's not like now you can get online and say, well, I want to just I want to study biology. What school has that? You know, there was nothing really but in there but an address of the athletic department, and that's that's how we we were sending resumes over, and then the, the coach was calling you. You know, and it, there wasn't even cell phones were unpopular back then, so you, you're leaving messages or messages machines, and it was a long process that took a while to to put together. But so I, I think I think the awareness is very small about the college game over here. A lot of people didn't realize how good it is. Uh, and then obviously the uh, women's soccer has really grown. There wasn't hardly any opportunity 
um, when I was coming up for women to play in England. Um, so I think now it's seen as a, as a good a good vehicle where if you don't quite reach the level, then there's opportunity for you to continue playing. So all of us who love the game, we want to play as long as we can. You know, we want to extend uh, the time that we can play. And I was fortunate enough um, to go to Australia for a little bit and then come to the U.S. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm you know, very blessed in that area where I've got to see um, soccer around the world. And all of that's had an impact on me, on the way that I, I see the game and the way that I want to train uh, the people that I train now. Um, so I think it's, I think the awareness is better. MLS, I think, um, I don't think the, the awareness of MLS in, in England is very high. I don't think anybody's watching it. I don't think anybody's interested in it. Um, you know, when Beckham was in the league, they might watch some highlights because he scored a free kick or something like that. But um, really, there's so much. Uh, last time I was home, there was so much so- soccer on TV in terms of the championship game is on tonight, and then there's a Europa League game, and then there's FA Cup game. I don't think there's even room in in the, their their schedule to squeeze an MLS game in. You know, so I think the awareness is pretty low. So looking at uh, the the landscape of American soccer, you obviously have stuck around and and didn't go back home uh to england you're 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 still here you're in pensacola and you're the director of coaching of gulf coast texans tell us a little bit about the gulf coast texans and and what what does the organization uh like in terms of a setup what define your role as as director of coaching uh there with the gulf coast texans Okay, yeah, you know, we're, a, we, we're, we're fortunate that we've got a complex in Pensacola on the north side. Uh, we've got a recreational program, uh, uh, you know, at the base of our pyramid, if you want to put it that way. And then we, then we have a, like a, a bridge program called Superliga, which is like a U10 academy where players 8, 9, and 10. And, and what, what we did about uh, 8 to 10 years ago is that, uh, and I know a lot of people kind of feel this way too, like I'm not a fan of the tournament, tournament, tournament set up for youth players. So we, we kind of put, pulled that, that age group out and said that we want, to, we want to focus on training. We want to focus on setting up some friendly games uh, and things like that. And it was a big resistance amongst the parents because, you know, the, the American system is about tournaments and, and all this type of thing. So we've kind of found a middle ground there where they still play the occasional event, but the focus is really on the training, uh, doing small side events in-house, uh, inviting other teams in to come play us. Uh, and that way, because, you know, we're trying to tell the parents, you've got another eight years of this. There's no rush to get into the tournament format. And I know we, we lose players because of that still, because there are, there are clubs around us that, um, you know, because parents think we need to play more. We've got to play more. And, and we're constantly fighting that battle. Well, you don't really need to play every weekend in a tournament against the same teams every single weekend, you know. So uh, we, we, and we, we try to restrict the travel until they get to about U13. So, and then when they get to a U11 and 12, uh, we'll, we'll introduce them maybe to some league play. I'm a big fan of, of being in a good organized league where, uh, that, you know, you, you're just playing one game a weekend or you're playing at the older ages, you're playing one Saturday and one Sunday. So it's one game a day and maybe only one night hotel. So you're not burdening the parents and everybody with constant travel and Friday night stays. Ideally, we can be in a, a good competitive league where, you know, we can leave Saturday, play Saturday afternoon, one night hotel, play Sunday morning and get home. So we're not, it's not such a drain on the players. Because if you have a successful team, you could play four or five games in that weekend, which inevitably catches up with you, you know, like in terms of injuries and 
burnout or just, you know, just a drag on, on you know, you might have to skip sessions because everyone's tired on that Monday or Tuesday. You've got to give them the, so you're losing sessions again, aren't you? You know, your, your practice to game ratio starts to decrease again. So a big fan of, of a high practice um, ratio towards the games. Uh, so we made that change a few years ago. I think it's really um, our Super League program on the boys' side. Now we have Bill Elliott, who's a UWF uh, men's coach. He oversees that. He's got a lot of the players out helping him. We've got some really good, energetic young coaches there. Uh, so we've really been working on that for a number of years to get that to that level. And, and the girls is the same kind of concept. It's run by um, Joe Bartlinski, the UWF women's coach. is run by his wife. So she has a similar uh, concept. She's really into pickup games and street soccer stuff. So we try to blend all those things together. And as you know, Daniel, it's tough with the, with the parental um, oversight in the U.S. system of, you know, where everybody's an expert on the game and everybody thinks they know what these kids should need. I think every DOC out there or everybody that's, you know, trying to program a club or, or work with, with youth kids is, is fighting that battle or feeling that in some area. So hopefully that resonates if any of those are listening out there, like we're all in the same boat. You know, we're all fighting that battle on a daily basis. So it's probably about trying to uh, provide, uh, my focus is, what is the training experience like for every player, whether it's rec, um, select, super legal or select? Like, what is the training environment like? That, that's my obsession. Uh, anybody that knows me is that I just want to do sessions. I, I'm, I'm obsessed with training. I, I want to be out on the training pitch. The game's not so much, uh, you know, but I, I really love training environments. How can we make it better? How can we make the recreational experience better for each kid? Because, you know, when, when you then go down, and I know you're interested in all this type of stuff and um, the development of players, is that you know, when you even go down and look at your rec sessions, you know, you've got volunteer coaches there that, that um, will, even though you have a, a coaching education program for, for you, will do the opposite of what you've been trying to get them to do. These are the problems we face is that you can show them how to train. You can show them good sessions. You can have classroom sessions, but they'll still go out there and try and do fitness because they think that's what the kids need. Or they'll still go out there and, and put the kids in a shooting line, you know, one long line, and the coach is laying the ball off and 20 minutes, and each kid's got like three shots in 20 minutes, you know. So we're constantly fighting those environments. So that is my, my role at the club that I see, is that how do I just improve the experience for every player, whether it's training, whether it's the appropriate programming for games, tournaments, leagues, whatever it is, uh, finding the right staff. You know, that's, that's another huge issue, isn't it? You've got to find the, the people that are passionate about actually developing players, uh, you know, and, and taking them to the events. Not every coach wants to travel. Like, when they get older, you've got to go to showcases in Tampa and Miami, um, different places like that. Not every coach really wants to do a schedule like that. So all of these pieces you've got to uh, uh, put together, and it's something I'm constantly learning out. I'm definitely not an expert at it. Um, but every year, uh, you know, I'm hanging in there. You know, like I, I a lot of DOCs, I think, will tell you <laughs> they're hanging in there. You know, it's a, it's a constant battle. So as a, as a DOC, what is your personal uh, playing slash coaching slash development philosophy that you're trying to impart to your coaches and through your coaches to your players? Uh, you mentioned you didn't want you know, the, the endless, you know, shooting lines or a, a major focus on, um, fitness without a ball. Um, what, what are you looking to try to, to, to develop there with the Gulf coast Texans in terms of uh, a playing philosophy m mindset, et cetera? Well, good question. Yeah. You know, 
it's a very interesting question is, is because I can only run so many sessions, right? Um, so um, basically, uh, you know, we don't want any, any fitness at the, at the complex. Our coaches are not allowed to do fitness at all. Like I, I don't really see it as a, as, as a factor in the youth game. If, if your sessions are demanding enough, that they're, they're going to get everything that they need in the session. Like, is there a way? Is there a way to get that element of the game with dynamic training? You know, like we should be able to we should be able to supply that. I don't think parents should show up and see their kid doing sprints. It's just, it, and and I should and we also ban fitness as punishment. I think that's another area that is a personal pet peeve as mine where. You hear stories of a team or a high school team or whatever loses a game. So we're going to be doing fitness on Monday until, you know, I just don't think the two go together. It doesn't, you know, I'm absolutely baffled by how that correlation happens. Um, But we want them on the ball making decisions. You know, that's that's what it is. It's like you can have different licenses and licenses are very important to learn and, and get better in different areas, not just the ABCs, but also you know, if, if someone like Raymond Verhine is coming over or Todd Bean or someone, there's a lot of different people where you can go to these courses and get some new ideas. Uh, and basically, we want the players engaged, making decisions, um, doing technical work that is, you know, that relates to the game. And, and we just try and tell the coaches that if it doesn't re- if it doesn't resemble the game, toss it out, you know. like So we want lots of games that are making decisions, lots of high-paced work, um, and also... You know, we don't want players standing around. I think there are, there are periodization moments where you're working high intensity, where maybe a, a group needs to sit out for a couple of minutes and then come in. Uh, but uh, now on the girls' side, uh, looking in the bigger picture here, on the girls' side, we, we seem to have a distinct style of play. And I'm just going to be honest here about uh, you know uh, boys and girls' side. They they don't they don't they're not quite synced yet. We're we're trying to get there. Is that the girls' side? You can take. We feel like that we can take a, a girl from, say, the 04 team and plug her into the 02 team, in her position. Every, and nothing really changes much. You know, they understand how they're playing. Um, and part of that is because of the coaches on the girls' side. We've been um, bringing them in on the women's team. Uh, you know, uh, all our coaches are volunteer in our in our um, women's program, and and they we just want them to learn so they get a chance to work with higher level motivated players. Uh, who are training the right way, uh, bringing the right energy, and then hopefully they take that back to their their teams come when the select season comes around, and they train a very similar way. So we kind of see that bleed down a little bit in terms of you know when you go and watch those sessions with the U15, U16, U17 girls, you know they're all, they're, they're, we're trying to promote the same things. So on the boys' side, it's been it's been a little bit a little bit more challenging, and I think we're getting there, but we'll, we'll have we don't have that kind of depth in terms of each team is, is, is got the similar type of schedule. There'll be a strong team. There'll be a team that maybe doesn't need to be in this regional league, you know, needs to be in more of a local league. So it's something that we're trying to work on. And we've been trying to build that from the bottom, you know, rather than band-aiding something, we've been trying to make sure the right principles are at the bottom coming up. And hopefully, you know, you know, these things take time, like trying to, you know, like how do you enforce a curriculum or how do you enforce a style of play? These are massive questions for us. Uh, they're involved in the game and, and, and they're not easy because what I feel like is that in terms of what you mentioned about style of play, that coach has to be really invested and interested in that style of play to be able to deliver a session that contains those elements and then motivates the player or educates the player to play that way. Like you can't, you know, it takes time, but that person has to be really passionate about um, playing out the back or counterattacking in a certain way. Like to, to, to deliver that into a training environment, you know, you've got to be, it's got to be in you and a passion about playing that, that certain style. So 
so where do you find those coaches you know and how do you uh, how do you then train them to to deliver sessions week after week after week uh, that are going to develop those players in that system so that's another that's a huge question I think for everybody around the country and, and, and certain clubs when you look at the fact that you have kind of a three-tiered system with the Gulf Coast Texans uh, on which is you know primarily youth teams what what are you hoping for in terms of development with a player that maybe starts out in your you know local level a recreational league type level coming up into the super league and then eventually into select what are you trying to develop as the player and how are you um in reaching to the coaches teaching the coaches leading the coaches at those levels to help prepare that that kid who is coming up you know first from the recreational into the um, next level of the of the Liga uh, Superliga setup into select. Yeah, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll identify them in, in the rec program. Um, I like to go out and check out the rec games or practices if I have a certain night off, um, and if I'm home for the weekend, I like to watch the rec games and stay in touch with the coaches there. So, and the, some of the coaches will recommend that this player moves on. Now, some of those rec coaches want to keep that kid, right? Because they want to win the rec league. I know that sounds insane, um, but uh, they'll sometimes uh, certain kids will be shielded from advancing into uh, the Superliga program or travel program because uh, you know coaches want to win the rec championship every year. So sometimes it can be a battle to get a kid out early enough because uh, you know they're just playing rec, rec for a few weeks a year. Uh, and they're, they're losing development. Like when you see them the following year, they're kind of look, falling behind a little bit. So we try to identify them, get get them into the Superliga program or invite them out for practices and things like that. Uh, and then it's a case of, uh, you, then, you, then you're fighting that battle of you know, individual development and team development, right? You want to have, you want individuals to develop in the team environment. And then, you, you, then you've got to develop the whole team in terms of, you know, what, what's next for them? Are they ready for this league? So, uh, but yeah, we want them to reach their full potential, which everybody's different. You can have a you can have a U16 girls team where uh, you've got 16 players and 12 really want to go to college. The other four just kind of want to play high school, you know. But they want to be this. It may be if something comes up for them, they might look at it. Uh, but academics are more important to them, and the kind of school that they they can go to academically doesn't have a soccer program, or they're not good enough for that soccer team. That might be a, a very high level program. So. You know, everybody's kind of got that different path. And, and I think I think it comes out a little bit at U16, 17, uh, especially on the girls. You can kind of see who's really serious about it. I mean, when they're young, they might all talk about playing for FSU, you know, when they're 12. I'm going to play for FSU. Uh, but when the reality hits at like 15, 16, um, then some, some of them can take different paths. But we want, them, we want them to have fun in the game, you know, number one, right? We want them to enjoy it. Uh, player retention is very important to us. Uh, and you know another hot topic is the high dropout rate right in, in American sports at age 14 a high that there is a huge dropout rate after that point um, so we want to make sure that they're still they're still in love with the game you know they're still enjoying it the environment's positive uh, and they're, and they're getting better you know like you I think people will say if they feel like they're progressing uh, they're more inclined um, to stick with it um, so so yeah just reaching their full potential I think is, is kind of like the standard answer. But I think that inside of that, there's a lot of different elements. So looking at, I want to switch gears here for a second. Um, looking at sure. your your other program that you're heavily invested in, in, invested in and working with, 
is the Pensacola FC uh, ladies team and and that whole side of the 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 club, etc. Um, yes, you you have two teams playing in the WPSL, the Pensacola FC Academy ladies and the Pensacola FC ladies teams. Um, why the two teams and what is the what's the goal? What's the mission for that particular project? Yeah, good good question, and, and this gives me a good chance to answer that because not a lot of people know why. You know, we've been in these these uh, WPSL since, since 2011. We went into the W League. I don't know if you remember that the USL had a women's league, which is fantastic, by the way. Uh, we went into that in 2014. That then folded, um, and so we came back to the to the WPSL. But we've been in three it's, we've been in three different conferences, Daniel. You know, we started off in the Florida conference, having to, having to play 12 games, so six on the road. So Miami, Tampa, Orlando, you name it. It was really brutal. Then they formed this, uh, the, the um, Southeast Conference. So we, had, we were in with Memphis, Knoxville, Chattanooga. Uh, two years ago, they put us in a away game in Arkansas. You know, it's just madness. And uh, then, thankfully, they formed this other conference now that we're in, which includes uh, the, the Rangers, Baton Rouge, and Mississippi Blues. And Birmingham was in it, right? So it was, it was a nice conference. I was so happy that our travel was reduced because, you know, costs in these minor league operations are huge when you take a team on the road so um but then birmingham has always been wanting to push into that tennessee kind of dominant conference and they they did that this past year so we were left with basically a situation where they were going to do one of those things where they roll everybody into one conference and there's an inconsistent amount of games right because you got say eight or nine teams you can't play everybody home and away so you're going to play the two or three closest to you home and away, and then you're going to play random, which is what we did before. You know, where they get the, obviously the furthest team away from us was Little Rock. So guess which away game, random away game we got? We got Little Rock, which is you know, bizarre. So I'll, I'll, when, when we're talking to the league, we said like I don't think anybody wants that again. So I said that I, I have a lot of young players in our program that train with the women's team in the summer. Um, I as a plan B, if you need it, I'll put a second team in. So that way. Um, all the new teams that have come in, like um, Rangers and Baton Rouge, aren't going to have to go to Memphis and Chattanooga and Knoxville and, and wherever. And we can still keep it, you know, keep it manageable for another year. So um, they, they agreed. And a lot, you know, they, they had some negotiations, I think, with other cities that didn't work out. And um, I was happy to do it. So that, that team is basically, uh, you know, under-19 team just won the Florida State Cup, uh, which any, if anybody... You might know about that. That's a monster in itself. Uh, you know, it takes four or five trips down south over the course of two months to get to get that far. Uh, so m the bulk of the, you know half of the squad is, is, are those guys, and then you've got some O twos and O threes on there. There's even an O four, and then there's a couple of other local players uh, from the Panhandle that are on there. So, but the bulk of it is is um, our youth players there, and it's just getting them on the field, getting them that experience, um, you know, and giving them a chance to play in the summer. Uh, and, and, you know, we recognize the summer as a dead period, you know, years ago. That's why we started the team is that, you know, these kids aren't doing anything in the summer. And I had a player that was playing in the WPSL in, up in Boston was texting me saying, you know, back in 2010 saying, coach, can you start a team so I can stay home in the summer? My coach has sent, sent me to Boston. I, you know, it's a great experience, but I'd rather be home and playing, you know, maybe we could have a team in Pensacola. And I was like, you know, that's a great idea. 
so that's how you know that's how it come full circle was that we went out into the community and to try and get something started and now what, what i will tell you is that our youth club does not fund anything on the women's team so that's another unique thing about a women's program the coaches are all volunteer to keep the cost down um the club the, the club is about youth players so uh, you know and i totally get that so my focus is developing youth players this is kind of like i know it sounds weird it's kind of like a hobby for us, you know, like we, we enjoy the level, we enjoy the training um, and we, we want to make sure these kids have something in the summer to train with. And there are some players that want to come in. Uh, we've got, you know, South Owl players that every year we, we have a couple of South Owl players, a couple of UWF players, and we, we just want to create a good training environment. I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but that's really what the basis of it is. And, and now we've got these youth players uh, having the chance to actually get on the field instead of just being in training sessions. So looking at the program that you have for listeners out there and viewers who are looking at, you know, maybe they have a youth club and they're they're toying with the idea of a first team on the men's side and possibly a first team on the women's side. How how do how do you guys just to kind of give them uh, uh, some insight and some color to uh, the program, how do you fund your your first team and this reserve team on the women's side? Well, I have somebody that, that helps me, and then I've got uh, – there's somebody that, uh, you know, his daughter used to play in the program, so he's he's very passionate about it. So he, he helps out uh, – he helps out financially a little bit, okay, which we, 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 without that amount, you know, we would it would be it would be tough for us. So we have a couple of people like like that. We have some uh, some sponsors that we have year after year with a small amount uh, that help out. Um, we do things like you know we try and sell T-shirts. Uh, we we try and sell um, obviously the ticket sales uh, that aren't you know we we don't do a good job off of the field. We we don't have the staff. Um, I was really excited to see coming over to the Rangers game uh, the engagement from a lot of people behind the scenes. You have volunteers out there. We would love to have that kind of engagement over in Pensacola. We see AFC Mobile, what they're doing. And hopefully we'll get there. It might take us a few more years. To, to We've always been on the field. Product has always been good. Off the field, we, you know, it's, it, there's only one or two of us that are really running this program. Uh, then also players that come in to train, uh, you know, they've got to pay something. To, you know, they've got to pay something to train. Uh, with with the team and that helps us again cover some more costs so it's about piecing about three or four different sources of revenue together um, it's not about making money and then also uh, I'm not a big I don't have a hobby like fishing or golf or anything so this is kind of like my hobby in the summer it's my little project um, so that that's how we get through it's, it, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell anybody out there it's a struggle you know you've always think that you've got the cost covered and then something else comes up you know uh, so you've always got to really budget another twenty percent on top of your what you think your yearly budget will be, uh, and then hopefully uh, the, the fans will respond by coming to the game. Uh, people don't realize how valuable it is to just have a hundred people come out and pay five bucks each. You know that's huge for us if we can get if we can get people in, engaged like that. I mean, if you got you know when you see some of these people get a thousand people at their game, we would love that. You know that would be massive for us if we could get there. But um, you know one of the problems that we have. Is that our stadium location? I can't. We have a nice stadium and complex, but it's on the north side of town. It's nowhere near downtown, so you can't you can't do the Chattanooga model of let's go out to eat and then catch a game. Or, you know, we're on the north side of town, so we're all, we're away from everybody's plans. You know, so it's tough to even our youth players that know about the team and that are going to college. Some of them, you know, uh, don't come to all the games. So the biggest thing for us is um, 
if anybody's out there starting trying looking to try and start one of these, it's a great program in the summer. Uh, but you're going to need help. You're going to need sponsors. You're going to need volunteers. Uh, you're going to you're going to you're going to need certain you know budgetary things that you got. But we kind of we cut a lot of corners. I think our budget is probably one of the lowest in the league. It always has been. And I you know there may be some other clubs out there with a with a lower budget, but we're definitely in that bottom tier in terms of our yearly budget. I want to wrap up with opening Pandora's box here in American soccer and talk about promotion and relegation with you. You sent me uh, probably about two months ago, um, you know, some notes that you had scribbled on and put together on, on promotion relegation and a concept on the women's side of the game. And I think, you know, we, those of us who, who follow the global game around the globe, and look at, you know, the Premier League and the Championship, La Liga in Spain, the Bundesliga, etc. We we all can see and and if you've ever traveled to Europe or you're from Europe, you, you've experienced firsthand the byproducts of an open system and the benefits that that are there um, to, to being in an open system. One of the things I think that, that is often missed in the conversation in, in the context of American soccer is, you know, it's it's often talked about in regards to Major League Soccer and the USL Championship and these other leagues on the men's side of the game. But I wanted to talk to you for just a second on the women's side of the game. How do you think promotion relegation would help uh, grow the the game for women across this country, uh, despite whatever area they're from, um, in, in in whatever their background may be, etc. How would promotion and relegation and open access and then open system benefit the women's game in America? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a different dynamic on the women. Uh, like you're seeing more of these year-round leagues on the men's side, right? Lower down the lower down the system with MPSL Pro or whatever it is coming in, and I can't keep up with all the different USL names that keep coming out. Um, but uh, you know, on the women's side, you have the NWSL, and again, you face the challenge of America being a huge country, right? So every away game is a flight, you know. And if you've ever had to fly a team and staff anywhere, anybody knows. There's a huge cost involved, right? So, take take for, for us for example, if if the WPSL is a true in a truly promotion relegation system, we won it in 2012. It, like, and we if we were supposed to go into whatever the pro women's league was called then, because that's changed a few names as well. Like, there's no way, there's no way we could do it financially, right? And we're not year round; we're only in the summer. So, um, I think. But, but what I but, but what I wrote I gave to you that kind of paper or, you know, observations that I put out a few years ago, having been in the W League and WPSL, and I've worked, we had an NPSL team for a year as well, is that, you know, is that I think in, in the lower level of women's soccer, if you want to call this the second tier, I think there's room inside there for a promotion relegation system because some teams, are, some teams, you know, are just providing a developmental vehicle for their players or to keep them busy. Other teams that have more aspiration, they have six-figure budgets, uh, so I think there might be something in the WPSL, for example, or or nationally that that could be a higher level, that, uh, and then you'd have like the regional, local level, which I think everybody's happy with, you know. So I think there is room inside that, like making the jump to the real pro league on the women's side. 
I don't know, you're talking a couple of million budget a year. I would presume just, you know, just off the top of my head, I would presume you're talking 1.5, 2 million a year. Like if you're from somewhere like Pensacola, right, where's, where's that money going to come from? <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're fighting to, to survive, or, or, you know, in the WPSL in terms of, you know, keeping the team going every year. Without a few sponsors, we won't be able to make it happen. So, like, I think that, that challenge for me, and I know you examine, you think about this all day long, I mean, how do you, what about what about your thoughts on the women's game? Like, how would it transition from ocean relegation to the women's game for you? Well, for me, the way I look at all of this in America is, I think first we have to understand number one that our geography and our massive size is both a strength and an obstacle, and um, and so the way that I I view it is. Even on the men's side, I think we have to get local as 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 local as possible as quick as possible. So by that I mean, if you look at the English system, for example, you're going national league level in terms of operations and travel and footprint. Um, you're going national league level down. You know, four levels in the uh, from the Premier League down to League Two, and then it starts to break out into kind of you know some conference setups there. When you look at Germany, it it breaks down a little bit quicker than in England, but still has you know a national level at yeah. the first and second division. When I look at the U.S., I I think that we we should think of ourselves as Europe and. And, and and not be so obsessed with having to have a national league at every level. And, and, and by, by national league, I mean a team in Pensacola in the third division should not be traveling for a regular season single table match, you know, to uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, that's yeah. That's absurd to me. We should embrace the the regionality uh and and the the localism of of geography in this country and and one of the inspirations i look for this uh at is is college sports college sports are massive and in many cases like you know you you have a university of alabama florida state you have some of these really big schools throughout the country florida usc michigan ohio state some of them run budgets on their athletic side that are that are much higher than professional teams even here in America and yeah. and 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 some of their success I think comes down to the fact that they are playing in essentially regional leagues every year um, does that mean that they have a national competition or a playoff depending on their sport yes but their regular season is is primarily filled with you know, a, a conference or regional footprint of geography. So I think that the the, the necessity for an open system uh, for the men's and the women's side of, of, of American soccer needs to be with a focus on getting as local as possible, as quick as possible. And, and in so doing, you do a few things. Number one, you can reduce travel costs, and and as you noted, those can get very expensive. We and, and the reason why I say we need to think of ourselves as Europe is is in, for a couple of reasons. One is when you look at European competition, 
the teams that are playing at that are are operating on the the biggest budgets in European soccer. And they are also getting access to the biggest purses in European soccer. That helps pay for offsets or even provides them profits for playing in essentially the same geography of the United States. So an English yeah. team is traveling across Europe to play a game. Well, they, they, they finished first, second, third, fourth, or whatever in their domestic league the year before, the top league in the country. If you're in the champ, English championship, you're not traveling to Spain to play a game. It, it, it's not right. part of what you're doing. So we need to understand, yes, you have Spain, which is one country in this you know group of, of, of countries in the EU, and the U.S. is, is geographically, you know, astronomically larger. But we need to think of our, our states and our regions in a more regional mentality so that we are not asking a team, you know, from the panhandle of Florida to travel to Wisconsin to play a match unless that was like a, a one-off. You know, maybe it's a national playoff, something like that. But your whole season has been based on local play. So you're playing a Gulf Coast Rangers, you're playing a Baton Rouge, you're playing Mississippi, et cetera. And, and, and you are reducing major, major operating cost by getting yeah. as local as possible, as quick as possible. The other uh, byproduct of this that I think we often miss is the fact that if we want the passion level to really increase – you're not going to get more passionate, and and you can you can at me on Twitter for this. Um, if you're a Michigan or Ohio, Ohio State fan or any other rivalry in this country, but I promise you, come down to Alabama around the Iron Bowl, and you're not going to find any more crazy rivalry fans than Alabama and Auburn fans in this country. I'm telling you, and that rivalry is what it is because they're in the same state and they're like two hours apart. And the fans yeah. all over the state and all over this region feel it because of the fact that it's accessible um, and and it's bred into and, and baked into that rivalry. And, and if we want to see that kind of passion replicated in soccer, then it's much better for Pensacola to be playing Gulf Coast Rangers than Pensacola to be playing, you know, New Mexico United. And, and, Fans can travel, fans can see, fans can follow that passion level because of proximity matters. It's 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 very much like popcorn. And if you want popcorn to pop, you need multiple, you know, kernels in a microwave. And then that that kind of kinetic energy starts to, to, to kick off. And then it's like it goes from one kernel popping to now all of a sudden you've got all of these, you know, dozens and dozens of popcorn kernels just going off. It's the same level with passion when you're in an open system and you have accessibility due to proximity. Um, so you're lowering cost, but you're also raising the passion level. That's how I see it. I think that's how uh, we get better uh, in this country on the men's and women's side when we embrace and understand and learn the lessons of European soccer and say, okay, hey, you, you, the U.S. is a big animal. It is geographically large. There are a lot of benefits to that. If we ever, if we're ever able to leverage that, 
we're going to be unstoppable. But to leverage it, we need to also learn that lesson of, hey, let's regionalize, localize as quick as possible. That's how I view it. Uh, I don't know if you have any yeah. different thoughts to that, but that's how I think no, we, no, we need no, to go. No, I totally, I totally get it. And then do you see like these regional leagues that you're referencing, like let's just say GTPL and some of these other ones. I know you're involved in one too. Is that do you see? Ideally, would you like to see them go into some kind of playoff with an MPSL spot at stake or a PDL spot at stake? Well, I, I I think that a a system of connected leagues is necessary, and wherever a league gets you know divisionally sanctioned in that system, um, you know they get sanctioned. For me, I I only look at leagues as containers of clubs, so I want the leagues yeah. connected, and I really don't care what they're called. I just want the highway opened so that a club in Pensacola sure. can win the in the GCPL, and if it works its way up to you know, NPSL or USL League Two, so be it. I don't care. Just give them that opportunity. And then if right. they win there, they can keep moving up, keep moving up, et cetera. Um, I, think, I think one of the things that, that has happened negatively because of the closed system uh, structure that U.S. soccer has embraced for far too long is that these clubs um, are, are suffering because of the 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 fiefdoms of leagues the the leagues have made it about themselves rather than the clubs that are inside of them if we thought about this from a club centric mentality then we're then we're thinking about how do we get our clubs to the highest level possible instead when it's a closed league mentality we're thinking how do we keep ours how do we protect what we have how can we make sure all the clubs in our league stay happy and stay here and and instead i think we need to be thinking how do we get clubs more viable how do we get them more revenue how do we get them more resources so as they grow as they have on-field success they are prepared to take the next step so that a pensacola fc ladies team is able to make the jump to the next league and ready to take on a bigger challenge on the field as well as off the field so yeah, you know that's you know I, I definitely think they need to be connected on the men's and the women's side, and and we need to open up the highway for clubs and think about this whole process from the the aspect of making clubs more viable and and having more opportunity and not necessarily getting caught up with my league. Um, in realizing leagues should see, just be containers. Do you see anything? I know, I know this is a, a constant debate. Do you, uh, you know, just I know we, we keep going on this one, but uh, do you see do you see something changing in in that that area soon? Or because yeah, I know it's closed right now. It seems yeah. Closed. Do you, I do, mean, do you think I'm hopeful there are a lot of good conversations being had behind the scenes with stakeholders in various uh, leagues and ultimately. The, the main stakeholder that's going to matter above everything else are the clubs. Because if the clubs decide, you know, if if the Chattanoogas and Detroits and Pensacola FCs and the Gulf Coast Rangers and, you know, every other club around the country decides, hey, we prefer to connect and link and do and et cetera, then, you know, somehow, some way, either through the current league structure or through a creation of, a, of, of new leagues that are, you know, it's baked in, we're connected, that will happen. Because without the clubs, these leagues don't exist anyway. 
So it, it to yeah. me, it comes down to these clubs realizing the opportunity and also uh, unifying, connecting together. When they do that, then I think we're much closer to actually seeing the system get connected. And uh, we're, we're getting there. I'm seeing progress every day. Uh, are we there tomorrow? No, but we are, I think, trending in the right direction. Um, and I'm hopeful that these legal challenges will result in some substantive structural changes for the Federation that will also help get us there a little bit quicker as well. Well, it, it amazes me how many people, I know that you're one of them, that, that are, you know, are very passionate about this and are traveling to uh, national functions and, and trying to create awareness behind it. So it, it's something that I think I think the awareness is growing, definitely, and, and a lot of people want it. So I'm always amazed at all you guys that are out there campaigning for it with a passion. So um, that, that that's what blows me away. Well, uh, you know, it, I, I just I want to see um, American clubs have the opportunity to get as big and as bold and as brash and as amazing as they possibly can. And uh, I believe in opportunity and and merit. And um, and so I just. I work every day and, and connect every day with people and hope that uh, that all that work eventually we can all you know look back and go hey we, we're finally here and we can we can watch these clubs do some really cool things so that's that's my goal so yeah um, but David look thanks for coming on the show thanks for spending some time with us and and and, and, it. and sharing your thoughts if uh, people wanted to connect with you or your club how could they do so. Uh, you know, you can you listed my uh, Twitter handle on there. I'm not, I'm semi-active, you know, like social media uh, is a gift and a curse, right? Uh, you, you've got to you got to keep doing it. Um, you know, I, I run the Instagram for the women's team uh, and the club as well, uh, and, and so sometimes it can be a bit too much. So anybody out there, I think you know, will understand that. But you can find you can find me on uh, Instagram, you can find me on Twitter, you can find the club. The women's team is Pensacola FC. W-O-S-O, which is short for women's soccer, is on Twitter and on Instagram. That's really the best way to follow us. Uh, on Instagram, we post daily stuff about our training, little videos and uh, updates. And that, That's really, if any of the fans or the young players want to keep up with uh, the women's team, that's the best way for sure. Uh, and on Twitter for, for some updates as well. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Really enjoyed having you on and uh, Good luck with uh, the rest of your WPSL season and with all of your work there in Pensacola. All right. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was Bye. that was David Kemp of the Gulf Coast Texans and the Pensacola FC uh, women's soccer team, the ladies there in Pensacola. Um, and I really uh, appreciate him coming on, spend some time and chatting about all things uh, there going on in Pensacola. Thanks for tuning into the show and um, for following the show um, and really do appreciate it. Uh, tomorrow, um, we're, we're going to be joined by a club in San Francisco that is doing things a little bit different, San Francisco City FC, and um, really looking forward to having Joachim Steinberg on the show to kind of talk about San Francisco City FC and, and what makes them a little unique. So. Look forward to that chat. As always, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for tuning in. We will see everybody again tomorrow.